you want to turn to Jonah chapter 4, it's where we are today. We're finishing up. Jonah's got four chapters, so this is it. You might remember at the beginning of this series, we introduced the, uh, the series theme for Jonah. That while on mission as his sent people, our good father faithfully pursues us as his mission. As the series closes, we'll see the father's perseverance in that pursuit of Jonah. Jonah's been running the whole narrative, and the father's been per, uh, pursuing him, and the father continues pursuing him and, and perseveres in that. Uh, and, and in doing so, he, uh, here in this fourth chapter, approaches the stronghold uh, of Jonah's rebellion. So our theme in chapter four is this. When our hearts take shelter in self-serving ideology, our Father challenges our convictions and leads us to hope in His steadfast love. This sermon is titled, The God Who Perseveres. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for pursuing us and persevering in Your pursuit of us uh, to this point, and we thank You that we can... um, we can hope in your continued perseverance with us, uh, that our, um, our continuing in the faith is not dependent on something that originates in us, but in you. You're our hope, and we pray that, uh, that you would speak to us today, that, that Jesus, it would not be just me and my words and uh, this coming from me, but that it would be your words of life uh, preach to us that Jesus, you would you would come into our our city, as it were, and and preach to us your gospel, um, that we would be transformed and changed as a people. We thank you in Jesus' name. We pray, Amen. So, how does Jonah end? It doesn't end bleakly in the ocean depths with Jonah's death. That didn't happen. Nor does it end on the high note of Jonah's song after his rescue. Nor does it end with the sense of completion and the sound of victory that came at the end of chapter 3. It doesn't end with the the revival that happens in Nineveh. The mission to Nineveh is over, but the mission to Jonah is not over. It continues. Jonah has been keeping God at arm's length throughout the entire book by physically running from him, trying to run from his presence, by praying a theologically sound prayer that in, taken in context was lacking that repentance that would really let the Lord into his, in, into his rebellion and, and admit his rebellion. He continued to keep the Lord at arm's length. I said, okay, I'll finally, I'll obey, I'll do this. And he does it and he, he preaches. But at the same time, we could see the hatred for the Ninevites continuing to be harbored in Jonah's heart. He's keeping the Lord at arm's length. But the father continues to pursue him. In chapter 4, is a sit-down talk between a father and a son. Yahweh and Jonah are the only characters who appear in this final scene. Now, before we proceed with uh, getting into the, the uh, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 here, uh, one note that's important to understand uh, before we get into it is the sequence of this chapter is a little bit different. The writer uh, has reordered things a little bit out of chronological order. 
Uh, that's why we see in verses 1 through 4, we see Jonah is angry about God's relenting, that God's relenting is now a fact in verses 1 through 4, and he's angry about that. But in verse 5, we see uh, Jonah is going outside the city to wait and see what would happen to it. So verse 4 is actually the end of the chronology, but it's not the thing that the writer wants to finish with. So he gives us a little flashback in verses 5 through 11, uh, a flashback to something that happened before Jonah found out that the Lord relented towards Nineveh. Verses 5 through 11 act as a coda or a concluding passage to the narrative. This is the writer's concluding argument. He's bringing it home, what he's been building up to, and this is what he wants us to remember as we walk away. If you've missed some weeks of Jonah, uh, you're in luck because the writer builds up to his main point about this whole thing in this chapter. So let's start in verse 1 and head towards that final concluding argument. Verse 1 starts out with Jonah's anger triggered at the, realiz the realization that God has relented towards Nineveh. Jonah had reached his own determinations as to what Yahweh should have done toward the Ninevites. He's been playing armchair quarterback with God, saying this is the game plan that should have been followed, and he's angry that Yahweh has done what is unthinkable in Jonah's eyes. God has expressed his character of mercy in a way that offends Jonah deeply. Jonah has constructed his own views of mercy and justice, and God is not fitting into them. And, you know, we do that a lot whenever we're uh, following the rebellious ways of our hearts, whenever we construct categories of people who, like we talked about last week, people who shouldn't receive mercy and people who should receive mercy. And this is, re this is how justice should be shown and expressed. This is how, it, how mercy should be shown and expressed. And we construct our own co concepts of truth and justice and mercy and how all that's done. And then whenever God doesn't fit into that, we get angry. God, you're not supposed to be that way. You're supposed to be this way. This is, this, it's unacceptable to me. It's objectionable. I've made, I've, I know what's right. Our culture does that a lot. We construct these concepts and when God or Christianity or the Bible kind of crosses those, we're like, we reject God, Christianity, and the Bible because it didn't fit with us. It's not the way that we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to receive his concept, his idea of justice and mercy. We're supposed to be shaped by that and have that construction because that's what he's going to do, not inviting God into our construction of how he should be. Verse 1 says that it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. What does that literally mean? It literally means it became evil, wrong to Jonah. It's very, it's very strong, actually, in the literal meaning. It was evil and wrong to Jonah as a very great evil and wrong. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. In Jonah's theology, what God had done was objectionable, even evil so that he becomes 
furious. Now, Jonah's anger here is not just another symptom of his rebellion. We're seeing the surfacing of one of the main roots of his rebellion. At the center of Jonah's world, determining what is right and wrong is Jonah, not God, not the gospel, not God's word. Jonah is there determining what is right and wrong. Jonah, in his own heart, has switched places with God. When God shows, uh, chooses a mission that is not on Jonah's agenda, Jonah rejects it. He runs. When God chooses to show mercy to a people that are in Jonah's no mercy category, Jonah judges it as objectionable and evil. He doesn't say, hmm, okay, God's doing this and God is God, so I need to change. I need to receive this. This must be good. And he's like, no, God did wrong. God did something objectionable. I can't accept this. In a sense, Jonah's issue is not so much with the Ninevites anymore. It is with God. Jonah has held on to his hard-hearted, judgmental posture for so long, it has reached the point where he is even judging God. And I just want to, I want to invite you into being honest about that yourself, that your heart and my heart, we can tend to judge God as, as, as objectionable and evil as that sounds and is. Our hearts want to do that. Our hearts want to tell God in their rebellion, God, this is how you should be. This is the people you should show mercy to and not. And we get angry about him not fitting into our box. Throughout the entire book, we see from the moment Jonah bolts in the opposite direction of God's command, there has been a deep tension inside Jonah, not only towards that mission and Nineveh, but towards Yahweh himself. In verse 2, we see with his hopes destroyed uh, of, of Nineveh being overthrown, those hopes have been dashed. He finally lets that tension surface. He speaks plainly about what went through his mind when he decided to run to Tarshish. Jonah has been a man of few words towards Yahweh except for that prayer in chapter 2 until this point. And Jonah just acknowledges. He's tried to keep God at arm's length. He's tried to ignore. He's tried to evade. And now he just says exactly what went through his mind. And, and he says this, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Even when Jonah is saying, this is exactly what I thought, Jonah is still quoting things back to God about him that are totally true, and it almost superficially sounds like a praise of God, doesn't it? It, it brings up his wonderful attributes, but look at how it's being used. How is Jonah Using the, he's using God's character as an argument against God. He's saying, because you are like this, I rejected your mission. That's not a praise of God. He has a problem, Jonah does, with God's compassionate character. It doesn't fit his worldview and his inclinations. And he really is quoting 
Exodus 34, 6. You don't have to go there, but if you went there, you would find almost word for word what Jonah says here. What's happening in Exodus 34, 6? God is speaking his name to Moses. He's revealing about himself the core of who he is. This is who I am. This is my name. And he speaks about him being a gracious God, a merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. But Jonah leaves off the continuance of that that goes into Exodus 34, 7. Jonah leaves out a whole part that affirms the justice of God. Jonah only quotes 34, 6. 34, 7 says, Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Jonah leaves that part off. That's not the part he has an issue with. He's reviewing God and he's highlighting the parts that he has an issue with. So in other words, what Jonah is saying whenever he makes a statement in verse 2 is not, God, you're awesome, and this is why I like you, because this about you. He's not saying that. Instead, he's saying, I didn't want this mission, God, because I didn't trust you to do the right thing. That's the truth. I don't trust you to do the right thing, because I had a feeling you were going to forgive these people, and I don't think that they deserve mercy at least I know that you are, you are capable of such far-reaching mercy. Because didn't God give this same mercy to Israel? If you look at the uh, other uh, prophetic books, you'll see God is reaching down to a nation that is compared to uh, someone who is naked and wallowing in blood and shame, and he picks them up. He picks them up in his far-reaching mercy, not because they earned it. That's why Jonah knows the far-reaching mercy of God, and he just doesn't want it given to others. He didn't want to have any part of it. Now, verse 3 shows Jonah finding God's actions so unbearable that he makes a request to die. God has violated Jonah's firmly held convictions And he feels like he can no longer rejoice in God's character or deeds. So there's nothing left. If God isn't going to be and act the way that I feel he should, and my enemies get to rejoice and enjoy his mercy, then what can I take pleasure in in this world? Jonah is a person whose hope was falsely placed, not in God, but in God being a certain way, God being what he thought God should be, God fitting into his conceptualization of mercy and justice, God being who he wanted God to be. And once God expressed a fuller range of his mercy and his compassion, when God broke out of the box that Jonah wanted to put him in, when God is blowing his mind and blowing away his categories of mercy and no mercy, it disillusions Jonah. Jonah probably feels hopeless at this point. He's asking to die. But there's hope for Jonah, and there's hope for us whenever we feel disillusioned by 
God's word and how it doesn't fit with our culture and it doesn't put us in comfortable places and it doesn't put us in comfortable places within the cultural conversation or with our own concepts and our own inclinations and how we think things should go. Whenever we feel disillusioned, there's hope for us because God is not being the father that Jonah needs or that or what Jonah wants or necessarily what we want, but what Jonah and we need. He is faithfully being that father instead of giving us what we want. He's being what we need him to be, and we desperately need him to be this way. In verse 4, the Lord speaks, and he replies, uh, he, he asks Jonah a question. He says, do you do well to be angry? Now, basically what that means is it's a little firmer. If you go to the, the literal translation of it, it's, what right do you have to be angry? God is mercifully responding to Jonah's unrighteous anger in a way that is both gentle and firm. He's being firm with Jonah, but he's being very gentle if we consider Jonah's posture and the way that he has entered into judgment of God. He's in a very dangerous place, but God is dealing with him mercifully. He's taking his son by the hand. He is not silencing him. He's asking a question. He, he's not saying, shut up, and I'm going to lecture you now from afar. He doesn't say that. The father actually comes near to Jonah, and he counsels him. He doesn't attack Jonah, just like he doesn't attack us, his children. He doesn't attack us because of our anger. He doesn't attack Jonah because of his anger. He attacks Jonah's anger and the false basis of his anger. He attacks the root of it, the root of his rebellion, by asking him about it. He leads him to examine his anger, to question himself. Jonah, check yourself right now where you are. Do you have a right to be angry? Ask yourself a question. I just want you to realize how far you've come. I want you to ask yourself a question and check yourself right now because you're in dangerous territory and I can't leave you here. And he actually de-escalates Jonah because Jonah is at this point in a way suicidal. He's asking for death. He's feeling hopeless. God de-escalates him by asking him this disarming question. We'll see that the father ignores Jonah's misguided request for death, and he perseveres with him. And doesn't he persevere with us as well whenever we flail about and we throw fits, and our hearts throw fits every day, and the father perseveres with us? There's absolutely nothing sometimes that we're doing that would make, that would in, of, in and of ourselves and what we're doing just like a little toddler throwing a tantrum. There's nothing they're doing that is pleasing right now, but we persevere with them. We love them. We're, we're going to persevere through this tantrum, and God is doing that with Jonah as well, and he does that with us. And when I look at Jonah's anger, I know that anger is, for the most part, almost always a reaction to something. But there's a, there's a specific emphasis on uh, reaction here in Jonah's anger. He's reacting to God's deeds here. He's reacting to God's relenting. There's a 
reactionary type of anger that we could call outrage. He is outraged that God did this. Outrage is a very familiar type of anger in our current cultural climate. When are we not outraged would be a good question. We live in an age of outrage. We are given via news and social media every day an outrage buffet. What triggers you when you see people acting lawlessly? Here's a video in your feed. Here's a video on the news. Just watch this. It's sure to make you seethe with anger. It's sure to outrage you. Or does it set you off when you see the law abusing people? Here's a new video that depicts that. Not wrong to be outraged, but the focus in our culture has turned to outrage itself as if it's the answer. That our outrage is the answer, but we know that everything, even our outrage against evil things, is mixed. There's nothing in us that is pure totally pure in and of itself and in and of ourselves. Only God's anger is absolutely pure, righteous anger. And we should always be suspicious of our own anger, even whenever we're angry about something that really we should be angry about. Being angry is not a sin. The Bible says, be angry and do not sin. Whenever we don't give proper, appropriate suspicion about our anger, and we consider it pure, unright, uh, pure righteous anger, we are in danger of entering into a sinful response fueled by anger and outrage. We're given this outrage buffet, and then we're given a comment section to express our outrage and demean the different groups of people in the video based on whatever political persuasion that we belong to. Oh, and here's a group of people who are triggered by the same thing and can't stand the same people that you can't stand. So you can be outraged together towards that people group. Now, outrage culture doesn't put us in a posture of repentance. And it doesn't put us in a posture that is ready to ask for mercy or give mercy. Instead, when we're in that posture, we are far away from repenting and relenting. We're far away from it. That is, that is the enemy leading us far away from where the Lord wants us to be. He wants us to be so outraged that it is unthinkable to relent towards these people. It's unthinkable to show them mercy. Now, this is not an exhortation to stop watching the news or to part, stop participating in social media. This is a call to be aware of the conversations that we are drawn into and how those conversations may be shaping our hearts rather than the gospel. What is the dominant conversation in your life? What is the conversation that is shaping your heart? Is it listening to the Father speak his better story to you that will lead you to be outraged to an extent over evil things, but not to the extent that you judge people and you, you get this posture of no mercy towards them. That's not what the outrage that the Father will lead us to do. Or is it the political and cultural conversation of the world? Is that shaping your heart? We are called as a people to speak the gospel into those conversations. 
We're not called to be silent. We're not called to avoid them. We're not called to remove ourselves from them. We're called to be part of that conversation as the people of God and speak into it, but not to be shaped by it, not to let those conversations shape our hearts. So while we are continually being pulled towards conversations in which we judge and give our opinion that others need to change, the Father is actually inviting us into a conversation with Him to change us. This is the conversation we need to be in. If we're not in this conversation, we need to, we need to get into this conversation. Now, as I said earlier, as we get into verse 5 here, we have a, a kind of a, a switch, a flashback of sorts. The writer takes us back before Jonah knew that the Lord was going to relent. He takes us back to a point in the conversation where it reaches the crux, and that's where he wants to end his account of Jonah. From the beginning of the book, this is the aim of the writer, where he is wanting to go. So as we approach that crux that the writer is getting to, let's take note of a few details that are given to us intentionally. Some details that help us further contrast Jonah's posture with that of the Ninevites. Now at this point, Jonah, again, he thought that there was a chance that God would overthrow Nineveh. So, so what, he, what does he do? He leaves the city, of course, if they're going to be overthrown, I need to keep myself from danger. So I leave the city, and I make a shelter. Now, looking at the timeline of these events, what do we see? What kind of picture do we have? We have the Ninevites repenting in sackcloth and ashes, waiting for mercy, hoping for mercy. And Jonah is outside the city, removed from everybody, in a shelter, hoping for judgment. That's just the picture. Okay? Those things are happening at the same time. Jonah has built a shelter because if God overthrows Nineveh, he wants to be comfortable while he watches these people be destroyed. It sounds callous, doesn't it? It sounds devoid of mercy. <laughs> but before we enter into judgment of Jonah, let's admit that this really isn't any different than what our hearts to tend to do in our rebellion. We build shelters all the time. We build ideological and theological shelters for our hate and our rebellion to make our hearts comfortable sitting in sinful, merciless judgment. Just like Jonah gathered sticks, we gather defenses, we gather our interpretations, we gather our facts. Oh, I can use that to construct my shelter that hides me and makes me comfortable in sitting in my judgment. Because I don't want to sit in judgment and be uncomfortable. I don't want to feel guilty about sitting in judgment. I don't want to feel guilty about putting people in categories. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take theology. I'm going to take God's word. And I'm going to make I'm going to take these facts. I'm going to make a shelter so I, I feel comfortable, so I feel justified. And I can defend myself from any arguments to the contrary. You know, like sin grows in darkness and hides from light, the rebellious postures of our hearts thrive under shelters that help them avoid any kind of vulnerability or questioning. So would, we would do well to ask ourselves this. 
First, the general question, what shelters have I built for my rebellious posture? How have I sheltered my rebellious posture? Do I retreat in defensiveness on certain issues towards certain people? Do I, have, do, I, do I deceive myself about having an open mind? By some things I listen, and then some things I just tend not to listen at all. I shut it down, and I get defensive, and I, all these arguments come up, and I just, I don't even listen. The other person can't even get a word in, and I won't even, I won't even consider what they're saying. Because on, on this, I, I'm, I'm sheltering my heart from any kind of conviction it could have about this posture I have. Do I shut down honest conversation when it gets close to confronting my heart? Now here's one, and I, there's some of you who really need to hear this just like I really need to hear this one. Do I retreat into impersonal intellectual talk? Do I keep things up here? so that they don't reach down here. Because down here, it's, it's uncomfortable, very uncomfortable, so I keep it right up here. Do I become a talking head because I'm afraid or don't know how to deal with my heart? I don't want to deal with my heart, so I keep it up here. Arguments, intellect, facts, statistics, whatever I can do to keep the conversation, just two talking heads, because that's very comfortable, right? We can throw around opinions and ideas and, and this and that, and we never have to confront our hearts. We never have to confront and admit we're wrong, and we're at the center determining right and wrong rather than the gospel. We don't want to admit that. Am I walking the streets of Nineveh, being present and in person with these people whom God is calling to repentance, these people God cares about, these people God wants to show mercy to? Am I there with them? Am I observing their pain and their suffering and listening to them and interceding for them? Or am I camping outside the city in a shelter, judging them and hoping for their destruction? Or am I indifferent? Am I just removed and outside the city in my shelter and just comfortable what, whatever happens to them, whatever happens, happens. And just sheltering myself from, from feeling compassion, from feeling mercy towards them, from relenting towards them. We build those shelters all the time. Jonah built one. But the good news is God doesn't leave us in our shelters. He approaches us, and he approached Jonah. He approaches him, and he gives him an object lesson to open his eyes to his hypocrisy. In verse 6, we see that God appoints a plant to grow up over Jonah to give him shade. The, the, the specific type of plant is probably a, what they call a castor oil plant. It probably looked a little bit like that. It's not huge. It's not very big. It's not much, but Jonah was desperate to get away from the intense sun. And God kills a plant, the plant uh, by appointing a worm. And he sends a combination of scorching sun and hot wind. Jonah becomes faint. Remember the last time Jonah became faint? Chapter 2, down in the depths of the ocean, he said, whenever my life was fainting away. 
But this time, Jonah doesn't call out to the Lord and say, save me. Instead, he, he says, I'm, I'm done. Kill me. I'm glad. It's such good news to me that whenever we're done, we're ready to quit. God's not. We're ready to hang it up on the Father, on His Word, on life. He's not giving up. He stays with us. He talks us through it. He's like, uh, he's like the person that stays up with you the whole night. I'll be here with you through this thing. I'll never leave you, and I'll talk you through this. Keep talking to him. And it seem, might seem like an overreaction to hot wind and sun. It's like, come on, Jonah, have you ever been to Okinawa? In July, August? With no sunscreen on? This might seem like an overreaction, but it's probably a, a particularly intense heat and wind. Commentator Douglas Stewart says that this wind may have been similar to a specific kind of wind that they call the Sirakau that sometimes blows in North Africa and the surrounding regions. And get this, it's so intense and so hot. It's like charged with so many positive ions that it can affect the chemical levels in your brain and cause exhaustion, depression, feelings of unreality. In some countries, it actually affects the legal proceedings that the punishment for a crime committed while this wind is blowing may actually be reduced at judicial discretion. So strongly does this hot wind affect people's thinking and actions. And so Jonah, just like the stormy, heavy waves that surrounded him and pounded him in the, in the sea, the wind is probably giving him a taste of unrelenting judgment. Jonah, is this really where, what you want? Is this really what you, what you want others to experience? This is unrelenting judgment. This is a taste of it. Do you, do you really want this? This is serious. This is a taste of what Jonah deserves eternally and what the Ninevites will experience eternally if God does not relent. The Father is providing what should be a sobering glimpse at judgment that not only we would never want, but we should never want for our enemies. But Jonah's heart won't relent. When he's asked if he has a right to be angry about the plant, he replies that he does, that he's angry enough to die. He's like, I'm serious. I want you to kill me. I'm serious. He says it like three times in this chapter, two or three times. He's like, kill me. I'm ready to die. But when it seems like Jonah's heart is hopelessly rebellious, the last word in the narrative, and this is good news, the last word in the narrative is given to the father. And the father is not saying to Jonah, I'm done with you. I quit. You're just not going to change. Instead, it's words of perseverance. He continues the conversation with, with his son. He says this. He says, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came to being in a night and perished in a night. You didn't create the plant and make it grow. The plant never earned your concern even. 
It's not even yours. You had no part in it, and yet you loved it and was upset that it died. And the father continues, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons? Shouldn't you be upset at the prospect of all these people in this city losing their lives? These people who do not know their right hand from their left. Now that statement is familiar, very familiar. We would hear it one day after this story when a better Jonah would come and he would go outside the city not to watch it burn. He would go outside the city that it might be saved. And while hanging on a cross for his enemies, he would say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know. And that's where the narrative of Jonah ends. The way that it ends in mid-conversation is very purposeful. The writer pulls out one more device to drive his point home. It speaks to the fact that not only does the conversation continue with Jonah, but it continues with us. Jonah's response, if there was one, is left off. Because the point of reading this narrative is not, the writer wasn't, I want you to, I want to present to you a nice story, and it wraps up, and, and you feel good about walking away. I don't want you to be in that place when you finish the story. Instead, the camera that has been, as it were, following Jonah throughout the story turns and points right at us. And that final question is posed to us. We have not been considered a passive audience, but we have been called to repentance and faith. It is as if the writer is saying to us, if you're reading this, you know, whether in Jonah's time or in 2020, if you are reading this, there's still time. Heed the lesson of this story. Now, the, the narrative doesn't end with a period. It ends with a question mark. To an extent, all of us in this room have a question mark at the end of our story as it, as it is right now in real time. There's a question mark. Will we remain trapped inside our narrow, self-centered, self-serving ideological shelters? Or will we take the Father's hand and let Him lead us into greater mercy? Will we respond to the Father's great relenting towards us at the cross and every day when His mercies are new? And join him in relenting towards others? Or will we remain in our fatal posture of unrelenting judgment and let it bring death into our lives? Will we make plans to escape his mission? Or will we heed his call to abandon our plans and to be his sent people? Will we be shaped by the conversation of the world or will we listen to the Father's greater story? Now, if we're honest, questions don't actually inspire confidence in us because we know that our tendency to rebel doesn't do very well with open-ended things like questions. 
will you do this or will you do this? Well, I don't know. Is God going to give me the grace to do it? Because my heart left alone will not. My heart without Christ is exceedingly evil and will end up on the wrong side of this. But the good news is that for every question mark in our lives, the Father gives us a hope-giving truth about himself, about who he is, about what he has promised and what he has done, and it has a period at the end of it. Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't say, it is finished. He said, it is finished, period. Philippians 1.6 says, does it say this? I'm kind of sure of this. He who began a good work in you might possibly bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ? I don't know. You tell me. You know, he doesn't say that. That's not what Philippians 1.6 says. It says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, period. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, period. Just kidding, that one's a question mark. But the answer to it, if you keep reading, the answer that, that, God will lo- that God loves us in Christ and nothing in the universe, in the whole universe, could separate us from the love of Christ, that has a period at the end of it. The point is, is that the saints persevere because the God of the saints perseveres because he perseveres with us. Our hope is not in, I'm going to try really hard. I'm, I've heard God's word, and now I'm going to change myself. I'm going to start off on this project of self-change, and I'm going to be a relenting person. I'm going to do this. That's not our hope. Our hope is in the Father's steadfast love. His love toward us in Christ is our hope. That is the basis for a good, solid answer, a good, solid hope to the questions that are posed to us. Now, I left one little statement out. I'm going to conclude with this. I left a little statement out at the end of verse 11. Do you, do you know what it is? Did you see the part that I, I didn't talk about? The cows or the animals or whatever, you know? Also much cattle. I left the biggest, most explosive part of this to the end. And people will often wonder why that statement was included and what the significance is. I've read commentaries on it, and uh, they offer plausible explanations. But I think I got the best glimpse of its significance the other day when my family and I were watching the, uh, the 2018 remake of Benji. Okay? If you're not familiar, it's okay. 1974, before I was even born. All right, so we're watching this remake of Benji. If you're not familiar, it's about a stray dog who rescues some children who are kidnapped. It's heartwarming, but it's, a, it's a, 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 a one that, that tugs on your heart. It had some sad moments along the way. So at one point, during one of those sad moments in the movie, I hear a sound over here, and I, I hear my daughter, Mahari, three years old. She says, Dad, the puppy. 
And I look over, and (laughs) for the first time in her life, I see tears in her eyes. They're not tears. I got a toy taken away from me. I bump my head. I'm trying to get daddy to give me ice cream, feel sorry for me. It wasn't those tears. First time I've ever seen this. It were tears of compassion. She's just looking at it, and her eyes are just welling up. There's no expression on her face, just tears. And I, I, I felt like at that point I started to understand how, how our Heavenly Father perse- perseveres with us. Uh, how, many, how many tantrums and how many really calloused ways as he, she treated her baby sister that persevered with. And I didn't say, like, you know what? Like, I don't think you're going to get it. I'm done trying with you. I didn't do that. I persevered with her. And, uh, and I didn't create this compassion in her. But as I persevere with her and I speak the gospel to her, to her heart, uh, I trust the Father to work in her and to work these things that I can't work. And, and I get to share in some of that, that joy that he gets whenever he sees his children showing mercy to others and growing in, in mercy. Maybe, maybe Jonah wasn't ready to, to show mercy to people, and the father's just like, what about the cows? You know, like, you loved a plant, you had mercy over it, let's take a step up to cows, all right? And the father perseveres with us when we're taking baby steps in mercy, And he has joy seeing that mercy, not just expressed from himself, but himself through us. He takes such joy in it, like I did with my daughter. Now, Kento is going to come up here, and he's going to lead us in, in praying a prayer of confession and placing our hope in Christ. And then he's going to lead us in, in communion. We're going to continue worship in that way and, and in uh, through song. Thank you.